This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi there, folks. Ben Mathis with two quick announcements. It's been about a year since I started Kick-Ass Politics, and this episode is officially my 50th episode. That's right, we're halfway to 100. And if you want to help me celebrate the 50th episode of Kick-Ass Politics, then go to our GoFundMe campaign and contribute $50 to our end-of-the-year fundraising campaign. I'm trying to raise our entire production expenses for the coming year by the end of this year, 2015. And it's getting down to the wire, so I need your help. Go to GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics or click on the donate link on our website at kickasspolitics.com and give $50 to celebrate our 50th episode and help fund the next 50 episodes. Now, don't let me box you in at 50. If you want to give more than that, by all means, even better. And if you can't give $50, remember that every little bit helps. Then, you can take pride that you're a part of what I'm doing here, and you're helping me to get to 100 episodes within just a few months. But time is ticking away, and the end of the year is coming fast. So do me a favor and go to GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics, or click on the donate link on our website and say thanks for 50 episodes with 50 bucks. Another neat way you can help out, believe it or not, is just by doing your holiday shopping. As you know, today is Cyber Monday, and if you're like me, you'll probably be doing most of your shopping online. Well, there's a way for you to get your holiday shopping done and support the show. If you decide to order anything through Amazon.com, doesn't matter if it's books, electronics, toys, jewelry, whatever, before you do that, go to the sponsor page on our website at kickasspolitics.com and click on the Amazon link. Then do your shopping. If you do that, Amazon will kick us a little coin here at Kickass Politics for every dollar you spend. So really, when you think about it, it's like a double win. It's like giving two Christmas gifts for the price of one. You're going to do your Christmas shopping anyway. Just go to the website and click on the Amazon link. It's that simple. And while you're there, check out some other cool holiday offers from our partners on our sponsor page. It's a way for you to get some great holiday deals, find that perfect gift, and help keep us producing new episodes of Kick-Ass Politics. So I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving, and thanks again for helping me get to 50 episodes today. And now, enjoy the show. Hi there, and welcome to Kick-Ass Politics. I'm delighted to have my old friend Carl Rove on the show today. He's a Fox News political contributor and writes a weekly op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. Before that, Carl Rove was the political strategist to Governor and then President George W. Bush, serving as Senior Advisor to the President and Deputy White House Chief of Staff. He masterminded the successful Bush-Cheney campaigns in 2000 and 2004, as well as the historic 2002 midterm election, in which the Republicans gained eight seats in the House and two seats in the Senate. Now, why is that a big deal? because it almost never, ever happens. It was only the third time since the Civil War that a president's party actually gained seats in a non-presidential election, and it earned Karl Rove the nickname The Architect, as in The Architect of Victory. 
as well as the nickname The Boy Genius, and a few nicknames from liberals that I hesitate to repeat on this program. But praise and epithets aside, no one knows campaigns like Karl Rove. It's been said that he can spit out voter data for just about every county in the United States right off the top of his head. And like me, Karl Rove loves to geek out on political history. Well, he's indulging that passion with a new book that explores the election of a largely forgotten president who waged the first modern campaign and ushered in a remarkable 36-year Republican majority that lasted from the turn of the century all the way up to FDR and the New Deal. The book is called The Triumph of William McKinley, Why the Election of 1896 Still Matters. Today, Carl will talk about why 1896 was a crucial turning point for America, how the McKinley campaign invented many of the campaign tactics still used today, and how McKinley waged the first truly national campaign, all from the front porch of his house in Canton, Ohio. Plus, Carl will show some uncanny similarities between the election of 1896 and the political environment leading up to 2016 and he'll draw some important lessons for those candidates running in the GOP primary right now. Coming up with Carl the Architect Rove in just a moment. to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. Folks, just when you thought you knew everything about President William McKinley, Carl the Architect Rove has a new book called The Triumph of William McKinley, Why the Election of 1896 Still Matters. Carl, I'm thrilled to finally have you on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Ben. Well, in case you couldn't tell, I was being a little bit facetious there when I said just when people thought that they knew everything about William McKinley. <laughs> you know, I, Nobody I think, knows anything about him. Yeah, that's, I mean, most people know that he was assassinated, and maybe they know the words the front porch campaign. But yeah. And I think you get that in your subtitle because it's uh, why the election of 1896 still matters. So why do you think William McKinley has, to a large extent, been forgotten in American history and why did you decide to write the book? Well, I don't know exactly why. Uh, perhaps it's because he was succeeded by a large personality in the form of Theodore Roosevelt. But think about this. We, we have political scientists talk about realignments in American politics. And in every instance but one, we talk about the year of the election and the architect of the realignment, 1800, Thomas Jefferson, 1828, Andrew right. Jackson, 1860, uh, Abraham Lincoln, 1932, FDR. But 1896 was a fundamental realignment of American politics. And we talk more about the guy who succeeded McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, or the guy whom he beat, William Jennings Bryan, than we thought, talk about the soft-spoken, uh, rather extraordinary president who came from Canton, Ohio. So I, I, don't, I don't get it. I, I myself stumbled onto McKinley when I was uh, doing some research into Roosevelt uh, with the help of a professor at the University of Texas, Lewis Gould, who when, when he agreed to take me on for a, uh, a seminar in historical source writing said, 
I'll, I'll let you, I'll look at your paper on Roosevelt, but you've got to read the McKinley papers and study the 1896 election because history gets the man and the and the election wrong. And this was nearly 20 years ago, and ever since then it's bedeviled me that he was absolutely right. I mean, McKinley is an extraordinary personality, and his stewardship of the Republican Party in this election brings about a realignment that gives the GOP dominance of American politics for 36 years. Yeah, and it's interesting because you and I have talked a number of times in person about our mutual love for Teddy Roosevelt. So it was interesting that you chose to write a book on William McKinley instead of one of the million or so uh, Teddy Roosevelt books that have come out over the past decade or so. Well, you know, Roosevelt plays a role in here, but it's a surprising role. It's a minor role. Uh, he, he Roosevelt, in 1895 gets the, the job uh, you know, of his life. He's made the police commission, a member of the police commission for the city of New York. And he writes his sister excited letters and, and writes his friend Henry Cabot Lodge letters saying, you know, I went out last night on a midnight patrol and found, you know, sleeping yeah. patrolmen and, and illegal, uh, illegal, uh, um, uh, bars and shut them down. But by 1896, he's back the wrong man for president. He's for the front runner, Thomas Brackett Reed. He's written influential articles on his behalf in major magazines, but Reed loses the nomination to, to McKinley, and and Roosevelt doesn't think much of McKinley. He writes his sister the a day or two after the nomination that we got a good platform in St. Louis, but and McKinley is a good man, but quote he is weak, and I worry that, about uh, him in a crisis for our country and. Yet he spends the next five months, June, July, August, September, and October, weaseling his way into the middle of the McKinley campaign in order to <laughs> achieve, at the end of the campaign, what he desperately wants, which is the assistant secretary of the Navy. And I chart the path that he pursues. Now, look, ambition's a necessary thing in politics, but you sure. read these letters and you look at his actions and you wince at the self-promotion and the desperate <laughs> quality uh, to, his, to his, his, his striving at that moment. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt was no shrinking violet, that's for sure. No, no shrinking violet at all. Throughout the presidency of George W. Bush, you were often compared to a man named Mark Hanna, who was the campaign manager and strategist for William McKinley. But he's been portrayed as this brilliant kingmaker and sort of this Svengali-like character who molded William McKinley into a real contender and won that election for William McKinley. Now, you say McKinley won because of William McKinley, not because of Mark Hanna. Talk about who Mark Hanna was and set the record straight on that relationship. Marcus Alonzo Hanna is a wealthy Cleveland ironmonger and coal magnet and shipping magnet who come, falls in love with politics. And he also falls in love with William McKinley. Huh. Uh, he uh, becomes an enthusiast of McKinley and as his interest in making money wanes, his um, his interest in politics grows, and um, he decides that he wants to help make somebody president. And first, he tries to help make Senator John John Sherman of Ohio president. And then, after seeing McKinley in action in the 1884 and 1888 conventions, he realizes that the man who has the presidential timber is McKinley. But let's not kid ourselves: the guy who was in charge of that relationship. Throughout, his, throughout the entire relationship is McKinley. He's in charge of the relationship. Uh, there's a uh, Chicago newspaper publisher who's a friend of both men, uh, Herman Cole said, who used to say that uh, Hannah's 
uh, posture towards McKinley was all quote always that of a big bashful boy towards the girl he loves, and Hannah agreed with that. He told people that uh, McKinley Hannah Hannah is think of Hannah as sort of the Don Evans of the presidential campaign, close friend of the candidate who go, spends his time raising money and healing uh, and healing rifts. But the great strategic thinker in the campaign is McKinley, who makes the three big decisions that need to be made, despite the fact that Hannah, on each and every one of them, was on the other side. He makes a decision in the summer of 1895 that he's not going to cut a deal with the Republican political bosses led by the easy boss, Thomas Collier Platt of New York and Matthew S. Quay. But instead of making pledges about patronage and cabinet posts and boodle, he's going to win this unmortgaged. He's going to win the White House without having made commitments to people for jobs or uh, sharing of patronage. He's going to try and win them to his side by advocating an agenda for the country and by his personal friendship and, and integrity. Second decision is a decision to uh, not go on the trail. Hannah is desperate for McKinley to go on the trail. And Hannah, could, Hannah says, I can't do that. He says, I can't be like Brian. I actually have to think before I speak. And uh, he ultimately is the architect of the, of the front porch campaign, which is an enormously successful, almost industrial style operation that brings three quarters of a million people to Canton, Ohio, to walk across the front lawn of the mayor of the major and hear McKinley speak to them about what he wants to talk about that day. The final one is that the critical decision in the campaign in the fall, in the late summer and fall, is whether or not uh, McKinley is going to address the free silver issue that has now been raised by Brian. He initially, in June and July and August, early August, wants to avoid it. He keeps telling people the issue is going to be protection. Don't worry about this free silver thing. It's going to go away. But by the middle of August, he decides that he has to confront the issue, and he begins to do so when he accepts the Republican nomination in a formal address in Canton in August. And from then on, stumbles for a couple of weeks in talking about the issue, but finally comes on to the right language. And it is only then that the Republicans begin to sense movement among you know, supporters who have drifted away because of the free silver issue. And in each and every instance – in a moment of great crisis, the guy who makes the decision, and oftentimes with Hannah saying, don't do that, do this, do something else, the guy who makes the right decision is McKinley. The final issue, though, is this. We think of him as the manager, but I charted his travels. Remember, this is an era where there's not good telephone communications, and you know you can send somebody a wire, but it's not you – know, yeah. you can't pull them up on your computer and have a – you know, uh, you know, FaceTime with them, and you can't pick them up on catch them on their cellular <laughs> phone as they're on the train between Cleveland and, and New York. And I charted his travel in the 118 days between the times that the Republicans open up a presidential headquarters in Chicago and the general election. In those 118 days, Hannah is on the road out of the headquarters 70 out of 118 days, which raises a question: Who was in charge? Who was running it? And it turns out to be a 30-year-old punk uh, who ends up – he turns 31 just before the election, who is like McKinley's surrogate son, a bright young lawyer from originally from Ohio, practiced law in Lincoln, Nebraska, moves to Chicago in January of 1895 to become an entrepreneur. And McKinley first puts him in charge of his Illinois primary campaign within weeks of moving to Illinois and then plucks him out of uh, – of that after the uh, after the national convention and says I want you to run the headquarters in Chicago and he's a 30 year old kid named Charles G Dawes and he is an extraordinarily gifted individual. 
Yeah, and what you talk about in the book with Charles Dawes serves as a pretty interesting lesson on getting in there early and building ground game. Because one of the keys to McKinley's victory in the primary was that he was the proverbial early bird who was building substantial organizations in key states before the rest of the candidates had even started their campaigns. Yeah. So talk about the lessons here on the value of having early well, ground Well, McKinley game. runs the first modern presidential campaign because he decides it, 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 before him, what happened is, is that candidates, uh, in the phrase of the time, left their fate in the hands of their friends. And people would go around and make loose connections, you know, get favorite sons into the race in order to hold a delegation to the convention with the hope that they could cut a deal with them. And instead, McKinley said, I'm going to organize this methodically. This is both he and Hannah. We're going to organize this methodically. It was in both their men's nature. And we're going to identify people who could work the effort for us. And we're not going to cut deals uh, about patronage and boodle because once you start, you can't stop. Instead, we're going to try and run pe win people to our cause by by personal friendship. And McKinley had a lot of them because he'd been served in the House for a number of years and, and was good at making friends and good at keeping them. But the other thing is, is that they, they organized in depth, particularly in the South. In March of 1895, McKinley locks up the South by taking a vacation. Uh, he goes to Thomasville, Georgia, which was sort of like the Palm Beach of its time. Literally wealthy New Jersey, you know, Northeastern and Midwestern Republicans would have their winter homes in this lovely little community just north of the Georgia-Florida border. It was on it was on a north-south and an east-west train line, so it was convenient uh, to get to get uh, to get there. In fact, there was a daily train to New York City, an express to New York, because there were so many people in the Northeast who had winter homes there. And they go there, and McKinley invites and Hannah invites all of the Southern Republican leaders to come over, and ties many of them to him by the personal charisma and friendship and integrity of McKinley. And as a result, uh, at the end of the year, one of the Thomas Collier Platt, the easy boss, the leader of the combine, the Republican bosses, uh, later groused that, you know, he had the South before we even uh, awoke. And this was particularly, this early organization was particularly important in Illinois, where he put Charles G. Dawes in charge of the campaign. And Dawes takes on the most deadly enemy that McKinley has in the primary, the blonde boss of Chicago Republican politics, Congressman William J. Larimer, and his ally, John Riley Tanner, the Republican state chairman and aspirant for governor. And Dawes beats them in April of 1896, crushes them at the Republican state convention two to one, and thereby ends the contest for the Republican nomination. But early organization was what mattered because Dawes had a card catalog of all 102 counties in Illinois, and he knew to the person who, as a delegate to the county convention, was for McKinley or not, and who, as a, candidate, a delegate to the state or district convention, was for McKinley and who was not. And he uh, aimed his uh, organizers accordingly. He was a meticulously um, well-organized individual himself, and it showed in how he approached the campaign. Yeah, and it really was significant in that this signaled the beginning of the end for the old political boss system. Exactly right. Well, like you mentioned, one of the keys to McKinley's victory was that he reached out and made headway with disaffected voters. Immigrants, especially German immigrants, southern black voters, labor unions, skilled workers. How did he go about making headway into these non-traditional Republican voting blocs? Well, uh, first you have to divide the primary from the general because he was in the primary focused on, right. uh, you know, different groups than he was in the general election. In the primaries, 
he actively uh, engaged in outreach to Southern black Republican leaders. A number of them come and visit him in Thomasville. And then he becomes the first candidate in either party. In March of 1895, he, he goes to black audiences in Jacksonville, Florida, and Savannah, Georgia, and becomes the first presidential candidate in either party to actively appear in front of black audiences and ask for their support. He treated them as equals. He very much he was a, he was the last Civil War veteran to be president, and he felt keenly about the issue of black voting rights in the South. In fact, it led the battle in the Congress to uh, stop Democrat efforts to disembowel protection of the of, of Southern elections. But in the general election, McKinley understood he the Republicans could not win simply by trying to recreate uh, their the alliance that they had had in the last 24 years. In the previous five presidential elections. Nobody gets elected president with more than 50 percent of the vote. Nobody gets 50 percent. Two presidents get elected with a minority of the popular vote and a majority in the Electoral College. Another one wins both the Electoral College and the popular vote, but the latter only by 7,000 votes. And Republicans in the South get no electoral votes after 1876, despite the fact there are four states with a black majority population. Republicans can't even win then because of the violence and intimidation and fraud. So McKinley looks around at that landscape and says, my party had better reached out to the swing voters in the election who were industrial laborers, people who worked in factories. And we also better do better among the new ethnics that are coming into the United States. There was less immigration from Germany and the United Kingdom, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, uh, and more immigration from Eastern and Central Europe and Southern Europe and Scandinavia. And so McKinley looked around and said, these people aren't tied to any party, and I'm going to make a, a spirited effort to win them to our column, despite the fact that many of them are Catholic, which was anathema to, to Republicans. I mean, the, the most right. powerful interest group in America was the APA, with the American Protective Association, a virulently anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant group. And McKinley stood up to him, um, stared him down, and kicked him out. And by doing so, he was able to win uh, you know, enormous uh, number of votes among uh, loosely affiliated uh, ethnic groups and among Catholics who had heretofore been virtually all Democrat. Yeah, well, you mentioned in the book it might have also had something to do with the fact that William Jennings Bryan wanted to take away those immigrants' beer and whiskey <laughs> uh, because yeah, apparently he yeah. supported the temperance movement. That's, that's well, the issue. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, Carl Rove and I will see if we can relate 1896 to 2016 when we come back in just a moment. If my conversation with Carl Rove has piqued your interest in the election of 1896, then you should definitely get his new book, The Triumph of William McKinley, Why the Election of 1896 Still Matters. And right now, you can download the audio version of his book for free with a special promotion for our listeners from audible.com. Just go to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics for a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook download, which can be The Triumph of William McKinley by my guest today, Carl Rove, or any of over 180,000 titles for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, iPad, or MP3 player. That's audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Or click on the sponsor link on our webpage to download the free audiobook of your choice. And now, back to more with Carl Rove. 
We're back, and I'm talking with Carl Rove about his new book, The Triumph of William McKinley, Why the Election of 1896 Still Matters. Well, Carl, for me, one of the funnest and most interesting aspects of reading this book was how I could hold the McKinley campaign of 1896 alongside the Bush campaign in the year 2000 and see where I think you put a number of these lessons into practice in that election a hundred years later. What were some of the principles and strategies from 1896 that you incorporated into the Bush campaign? Well, uh, one of them was that McKinley ran as a different kind of Republican and so did George W. Bush. They understood that both of them understood the changing demography. Both of them knew uh, who the, the, the key voter groups, swing voter groups were, and both of them uh, made an affirmative way of talking about things that, that, that allowed them to be seen as a different kind of Republican, open to the kind of, kind of uh, groups that heretofore might not have felt comfortable. Bush broadened the electoral battlefield, just as McKinley did. McKinley went after border and southern states and carried four of the five border states that had not voted for the Republicans since at least 1872, if ever. But Bush wow. went after you know, states like uh, New Mexico and Arkansas and Tennessee and West Virginia, the most important of which was probably West Virginia since it had gone for Bob Dole – excuse me, for Bill Clinton over Bob Dole by 16 points – and the last time Republicans had won it in an open race for the right. presidency was in 1828. So uh, there, there were lots of things. You know, we, uh, you know, run as an outsider, run as a candidate of change, emphasize the unity of the country, run as a unifier. You know, uh, focus on big issues uh, with a with a concrete vision in which people, the people that you want to have vote for you. Uh, can see themselves having a having a, a robust part. I mean, there are there are lots of things that we took. Uh, as lessons from the 1896 campaign, maybe didn't articulate them as such at the time, but but uh, they're there. Yeah, I mean, you say in the book, uh, you say the animating principle of McKinley's political career was a concern for creating conditions that would allow ordinary people to rise, which sounds a lot like George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism. Yeah, and look, also, admittedly, like Abraham Lincoln, because that was another, that was a, that, that's the original Republican right, who, had the the right who had this passionate view that, that the, the American experiment was about allowing people who came from nothing like him to rise in life. Well, at the end of the book, you sum it all up with eight reasons why McKinley won that election in 1896. What lessons among those eight do you think are most instructive or urgently needed for Republicans running for president in 2016? Well, uh, number three, that you gotta you gotta recognize the changing demographics and run a campaign that allows you to um, to draw to your draw into the ranks of the Republicans a a variety of people who've heretofore not been uh, in our in our party. Uh, number six, candidate of change. Um, this is really, really important, and it, you know it's it's really difficult for a political party to win a third term after two terms in the White House. It, it, there have been seven instances in the modern era in which the White House has been held for eight years by a party, and only one instance has that party won a third term, and that was 2000, excuse me, 1988. And so to win, you've got to position yourself as as the the, the candidate of change. And finally, I'd say, I mean, all eight are important, but but since you ask, I think the other one in this instance is after the era of Barack Obama, we really do want a president who could bring us together. One of the great things that, that President Obama had during his 2008 was his sense that he said, I don't want to be the president of red state or blue state, but the United States. 
And I think that really captured where people wanted to be after the Iraq war. But he did. He hasn't lived up to it. And that that sentiment that we need a leader who's going to put the best interest of the party above their own personal political considerations and try to drive us together as a country is, is really important. Well, in 1896, the election was driven by sound money and protective tariffs. I'm predicting that those probably will not be the dominant issues in 2016. But what do you think will be the driving issues of the 2016 election? Well, I think the economy and and, uh, terrorism will be number one and number two in that order. But there is a lesson to be drawn from the 1896 election. Some of these things, you're right, the issue of protective tariffs and sound money has gone away. But I want you to think about this. This is this is from this is from the cross of gold speech that uh, William that uh, William Jennings Bryan used to win uh, the uh, the uh, Democratic nomination. Remember, Bryan is not even considered a serious candidate 36 hours before he's the nominee of the Democratic Party. He's a, he's nothing. He but he gets up and gives a 30 minute long speech. He was a Bernie Sanders candidate yeah, well, kind of candidate. Even worse than that, he wasn't like. even considered a serious candidate on the, on the day that the moments before he's going to give the cross of gold speech on the floor of the of the of the Democratic convention. The David Broder of his time, a guy named Francis Lepp with the New York Herald, <laughs> is writing his piece and he's got a telegram boy waiting to take it. They'd be you know wired to the newspaper, and two two sophisticated observers are looking over his shoulder. Henry George the single tax advocate, and John Russell w- uh, Young, who who is a famous journalist of the time, had been a minister to China under Arthur, Chester Arthur. And and uh, Lepp says, the Democrats are looking for a Moses, and if the moment is right, uh, and Brian could become the, the, you know, Brian's the coming man, because if the moment is right, he could, he could become that Moses. And these guys look at him like he's a lunatic and say, you're kidding. We don't even know what that guy looks like. He's not a serious candidate. And Lepp points across the floor of the Chicago convention and says, he's a young man in the black alpaca coat sucking on a lemon. And Brian is getting ready to give the cross a gold speech, which just stampedes the convention in a way it's hard for us to get around. But in that, in that speech, which is largely about free silver, he talks about the economy. And I want you to think about this. This is what he says. There are two ideas of government. Republicans believe if you just legislate to make the well-to-do prosperous – then their prosperity will leak through on the mass on those below. Democrats believe if you legislate to make the masses prosperous, their prosperity will find its way up and through every class that rests upon it. So even back then, they were having this argument of which way is the best way towards prosperity. And McKinley wins because he finally understands that he must confront the issue of free silver head on, and he must make an argument about the necessity for a gold-based currency that makes sense to working people. And what he basically stumbles on, with the help of a speech by the former head of the American Federation of Labor, Terrence Powderly, is that he needs to stop talking about it from a position of business or, or the, the overall economy, but how it affects the ordinary working man. I mean, he kept thinking about it in terms of we're a developing country and we need European capital to build our factories and open our mines and run our smelters. Instead, he had to say – the first dirty deed that a silver dollar would do would be to reduce the value of your wages. Here's a loaf of bread that a dollar of gold will buy. Here's a loaf of bread that, that a silver dollar will buy because the amount of silver in a silver dollar would have been worth 52 cents rather than a dollar of gold. And so 
he begins to make the argument, this is going to take away the value of your wages. You deserve to be paid the best dollar in the world for the hard work that you put forth. And silver dollars are cheap dollars, and they will take away, they will eat away your purchasing power, your savings, your investments, you know, your the, the, the insurance policy that you have, the savings you have in the bank, the hope that you have for the future of your family. And it's, and it's a lesson to Republicans. You can talk about conservative economic ideas, but you better talk about them in a way that middle class voters say that matters to me. Yeah, and that's one of the things that Reagan got, exactly too. Right. Well, among those in the GOP field, if you could give this book to one candidate in the GOP primary today, which one do you think uh, would most benefit from some of the lessons? You know, in I don't book? know. Some of the candidates already have the ability to do some of these things. Some of the candidates are doing these things. But but I'm, I'm look, I didn't write this book for this election. I wrote this book to be sort of a durable look inside this campaign written by somebody who is not only uh, you know had been involved in campaigns, but had a desire to sort of get to the bottom of the thing. And the more I, I dug into this, the more I learned, and the more weird the story got, as, as you know, having read it. I mean, there's sex, there's violence, there's backstabbing, betrayal, ambition, courage, unbelievable cash, uh, compassion. The, the bravery, the personal bravery of William McKinley is just jaw-dropping and really cool nicknames. I mean, everybody has a cool nickname, a, a thing that we need to bring back. So I didn't write it to basically say this is about 2016, but there are lessons in it, that's for sure. Yeah, they called McKinley the, the major. major from his Civil well, he, War days, he, That right? was his third yeah. battlefield promotion. He entered at the age of 18 as a private, ended the war at the age of 22 as a major, and it's interesting. He was a congressman, he was a governor, and he was president, and the title he preferred above all others was the major. He said about the others, I don't know about those, but I know I earned that one. <laughs> well, while we're on the subject of names, uh, when President Obama decided to rename Mount McKinley in Alaska earlier this year, were you a little ticked off? Well, first of all, I thought it was interesting. You'd think he'd show more gratitude towards the man who made it possible for him to be president. <laughs> After so? all, William McKinley is the man who annexed Hawaii. And absent that, That's uh, right. you know, Barack Obama, born in Honolulu, Hawaii, would not have been po possible for him to be president. But look, <laughs> I, I, I disagreed with it, obviously. Uh, uh, it, it would have been it would have been something if he had if he had found some way to honor the 25th president of the United States at the same time that he was uh, renaming the mountain for for the benefit of a small native people's tribe in, in Alaska. I understand the importance to them, but I also understand that it would have been a gracious and a big thing for President uh, Obama to recognize. I mean, that, for example, one of the most incredible things to me is how devoted McKinley was to the cause of black voting rights and black political rights. In yeah. 1890, or excuse me, 1865, his first political act is to help campaign for the passage of a uh, constitutional amendment in Ohio uh, guaranteeing and protecting black voting rights, which goes down 45-55. And he's, he is deeply disturbed by the failure of fellow, his fellow Ohioans to, to, to pass this measure for which he gave four and a half years of his life in the Civil War to, uh, to, to, to bring about. So you would have thought – you would have thought uh, – <laughs> President Obama would yeah. have said the stalwart defender of, of black voting rights who had great personal peril took to the floor of the House of Representatives to to uh, campaign for it and help make it an issue in the North, that he would have honored him in some appropriate way. Yeah. Well, before we go, do you still talk to President Bush very often? And how's I he doing do. down in fact, there in he's Crawford? He's hosting me in Dallas on the 14th of uh, oh, great. November for a for um, uh, an evening program on the book. I'm going to be interviewed by Margaret Spellings, and afterwards he's going to have a little dinner for 
for me and some of the people who helped bring the book together. Oh, neat. That'll be fun. Well, the book is The Triumph of William McKinley, Why the Election of 1896 Still Matters by Carl Rove. And I'll tell you, Carl, I read this in one sitting, and it's as good as anything I've read by Doris Kearns Goodwin or David McCullough, and that's high praise because I really, really love both of those authors. It is the best historical nonfiction this year, in my opinion, and I'll even go on record right now as saying if you don't win a Pulitzer Prize for this book, then you will have gotten cheated for entirely political reasons. Oh, well, aren't you nice? I, I doubt it will be, but I really enjoyed it, so I'm glad you enjoyed it, too. Carl, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to me about William McKinley. Thanks, Ben. Thanks again to Carl Rove for coming on the show to talk about his new book, The Triumph of William McKinley. And you can order it on Amazon. I'll include a link in the show notes for this episode, as well as on our website at kickasspolitics.com. And it's also available as an audiobook, which you can get for free through that special trial offer just for our listeners by going to audibletrial.com backslash kickasspolitics. Definitely go get it. You can follow Carl Rove at rove.com or on Twitter at at Carl Rove. You can also read his latest op-eds every week in the Wall Street Journal. Don't forget, before you do your online holiday shopping this week, go to our sponsor page at kickasspolitics.com and make sure that you click on the Amazon link on that page before you start ordering. Then Amazon will give us a little something to support the show for every dollar that you spend at Amazon this Christmas. You're going to shop for gifts anyway, so why not help the show at the same time? And help us reach our end-of-the-year fundraising goal by donating to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com backslash kickasspolitics. It's really important that we fully fund our production expenses for the next year so I can put my energies toward great new guests, interesting topics, and producing new episodes. Whatever you give is going to help us get there, so go to GoFundMe.com backslash kickasspolitics. I will forever be in your debt, sir. Follow us on Twitter at KAPolitics or visit kickasspolitics on Facebook. And as always, I welcome your comments and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. In the next episode, I'll talk with Gary Kasparov. He spent 20 years as the number one ranked chess player in the world, and he's widely considered to be the greatest chess master of all time. But in 2005, he set aside his chess board to take up the cause for democracy in his native country of Russia. Over the past 10 years, Garry Kasparov has become Vladimir Putin's harshest and most high-profile critic and the de facto leader of the opposition movement against Putin. He has a new book in which he warns that Russia under Vladimir Putin represents not just a threat to Russia's neighbors, but a global danger to all free countries of the world. Coming up in the next podcast with Garry Kasparov. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis. And thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics.
This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.